My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. And you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. If you're with us on this journey of through the Bible, we are reading through the Bible chronologically this year. And if you're with us, um, you're noticing that we're in a very challenging part of the Bible. Uh, it's not just the Old Testament, it's the prophets. So how many of you are like, what is up with these guys? Why are they so depressing or angry? Or didn't they have medicine back then for some of that, right? Um, it is a challenging part of the Bible, mostly because it's not about us, you know? It's not like in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul is writing to the church. We're listening in on a conversation. We're peering over the edge and seeing what God is doing with his people. People, the nation of Israel, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And it's really all about their falling away from God. And it, just to pick you up on it, if, if you're new with us or you're just tuning in, the basic idea is this, is God has rescued his people, the Hebrews, the nation of Israel, out of slavery of Egypt. He brought them out, brought them into their own land, a, a land flowing with milk and honey. He was with them. Along the journey, he said, you shall have no other gods but me. But you know the rest of the story. They looked at the other gods and goddesses all around them, and they decided to forsake the God that brought them freedom and satisfaction and really true success, and they turned away. And as a result, God spent so much time coming after them, reaching out to them, calling men who were called prophets to come back, come back, come back, stop your rebellion, stop your wayward life, and come back to me. But the fact is, when you read these prophetic words, there's the major prophets and the minor prophets. It's kind of like a farm team. You work, no. The major prophets is just because it's a lot of writing. It's a big book. The minor prophets, not so much. And so you read these words, these guys were the most depressing people, right? They're the most uh, just discouraging people. They were uh, honestly the most um, despised people in the nation. To be signed up as a prophet was almost like a death warrant. If you ever encounter anybody that comes into your life today and says, I'm a prophet of God, and they, they tell you and they, they rebuke you, they're not a prophet, they're just a jerk. Because a prophet 
was called by God to call his people back to his heart, was to call them to repentance, was to say the way you're living is not right and you need to turn to this direction, to go back to the God that saved you, that rescued you. And, and the reality is it was a depressing job because these men were called out of obscurity. They were called out of just normal life and, and to get the call of a prophet, it was just this big resignation. Oh, my life is ruined. <laughs> Because you read what happened to these guys, right? Jeremiah, a whole series of things. For me, the biggest one is being thrown into a muddy cistern up to his neck in the mud, right? He's going to die. He's alone in the dark. Uh, Isaiah, walking around naked, okay? Not because he wanted to, because God told him to. Ezekiel, lie on your side for about a year, not turn over and lie on this side. You know, I mean, just the stuff that they were called to do was all a symbol of how the people had rejected God and how he was calling them back. But it's not something you wanted to do. But you had to do it because God had called you and had given you an assignment. And that assignment was to go and preach to my people. Some of the prophets preached to other nations, but predominantly it was to God's very own people. And you think, well, what? why were they like that? Why were they so on edge? Well, let me give you an illustration. It was given to me from uh, Joshua, Rabbi Joshua Heschel in the book, The Prophets. And he describes it this way. He said, imagine if you have perfect pitch. That means you could walk into any room and you could hear a note. You knew exactly what it was, if it was sharp or flat. Uh, you knew where it was in the register. You could sit down at a piano and just play the note. You, you knew perfect pitch. And uh, you decide to go to the orchestra. You get a season pass, and you're there, and, and week after week, you're enjoying just this beautiful orchestration, and uh, you love it. And then one day, you sit there, and as you're sitting there, and the orchestra is beginning to play, you notice that one of the instruments, like, say, the first chair of the violin, is just a little bit flat on one of her strings, just a little bit flat. And you're like, oh, oh, man, you look around, nobody else notices because they don't have perfect pitch. And you're like, oh, okay. And then pretty soon, the, 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 the viola next to her, he just goes, oh, I like that. He detunes a couple strings. And then, and then within 15, 20 minutes, everybody's like, oh, I like that. And everybody's detuning or tuning up their instruments. And it's this cacophony of noise. It's garbage. And you look around and everybody's clapping. They like it. And they go, this is better. And you're going, what, what are you, are you a fool? This is not the way it's supposed to be. If you look at the printed page, if you have perfect pitch like me, you know it's supposed to be up here. This standard is high. And how could you grow accustomed to something that's not the written plan? And those were the prophets. They sat there with perfect pitch, listening to people who were wayward, satisfied, desiring other gods and goddesses. And they were angry. But, but more than that, they were expressing the anger of God. They were the mouthpiece of God, but they were the heart of God. And these guys spoke messages that I believe still relate to us today. E even though it's the Old Testament, even though it's for a different old dead people, I believe that many of the messages that we read in the prophets are directly aimed at our heart today. As a modern culture, a Western culture, an American culture, a Christian culture, we could easily disregard the prophets or we could listen and say, maybe God is using that person as a mouthpiece to speak to my heart. One of the most amazing truths about this part of the Bible is you discover we're just a rebellious people. We are a wayward people. We're filled with sin, but we are so loved by God 
that his heart is broken when we turn from him and he goes and he pursues us. That just blows me away. It doesn't, doesn't make any sense, you know, on my ledger book, that even though we are so broken and filled with sin and wayward, and I'm not just talking about humanity here, <laughs> I'm talking about us, I'm talking about me, I'm talking about you, that we are broken, filled with sin, running away from God, but we are so loved by God, our creator, that his heart is broken when we turn from him and he will do whatever it takes to draw us back to his heart. Um, if we could uh, kind of get to this big idea, I want to share this. I don't know if, uh, oh, I missed the second Peter side. side. Sorry, I'll get that. The 11 o'clock sermon will be better, I promise. Um, just come back. Um, sorry about that. Uh, this is the big idea for this week. It's this. God only wants for us what we would want for ourselves if we were smart enough to want it. Isn't that good? That's good. All right, let me, let me check this out. God only wants for you, God only wants for you, this is God's desire for you, what you would want for yourself if you were just smart enough to want it, right? A little condescending right there, right? But it's the reality. God only wants for me what I would want for me if I was smart enough to want it. But I'm not smart enough to want it. I want something else, right? My wanter is broken. It, it wants something else, right? God only wants for you what you would want for yourself if you could just see it, if you could just want it, all of a sudden you'd realize that perfect pitch matters and that would be something that would radically revolutionize your life. But the fact is, you know, we don't want those things. I mean, you look at anything in life. I mean, you look at relationships, you look at marriage, you look at singleness, you look at possessions, you look at desires, you look at money, you look at futures, you look at identity, you name it. God has a perfect pitch for all of those. And if we only wanted what he wanted, that would make us amazing, right? But we don't. We want something else. And so we pursue something else. We don't want his ways. We want our ways. And what we're going to see today in one of the prophetic words is that the result is less than what we thought we'd get. So if you have a Bible, it's Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah is one of the major prophets. And uh, reading through the Bible every year, Isaiah was one I didn't really enjoy till a few years ago. Found the beauty, the poetry of it. And this was one of those chapters, one of those sections of a chapter that gripped my heart, that made me fall in love with Isaiah. Chapter 5, and it's about a vineyard. And uh, it's a metaphor, it's a poem about God's people. And he uses this illustration. And let me read it to you. This is uh, the first part of Isaiah 5. Uh, starting in verse 1. We won't go through all of it yet, but I want to just read this. Look at this. Now I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. He's talking about God. Okay, this is God speaking about this. He says, my beloved had a vineyard on a rich and fertile hill. He plowed the land, cleared its stones, and planted it with the best vines in the middle, he built a watchtower and carved a wine press in the nearby rocks. Then he waited for a harvest of sweet grapes, but the grapes that grew were bitter. Now, that's a beautiful picture, right? Well, a number of years ago, I had the chance to visit Israel. I've visited Israel many times since then. This is my first time on an actual tour, and I was able to go 
to this kind of environment, this, this place. We stood exactly here. I'm not sure if it's the one that Isaiah spoke about, but it's west of Jerusalem as the mountains begin to go down into the, the sea there in the lowlands, they would call it. And it was a rich and fertile vineyard. And this is what we saw. And I took pictures. These are my pictures I took of this place. And I want to reread Isaiah's words with the pictures that I took standing in this place. So take a look at this. This is what I saw. Now, this is a vineyard. Now, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. Now, now most of us go, that doesn't look like anything I see in the Bordeaux region of France, right? Or when I've gone out to the wineries out here in, in you know, this area, it doesn't look like that, right? Well, yeah, we, my wife and I did this too. We, you know, we have a trellis and we tie up our vines and we have it up here. That's not how it is in the Middle East and Israel. They grow them along the ground. They do prop them up with rocks or tires or old, you know, gallon milk jugs, actually, anything. They just prop them up. But this is a good looking vineyard, okay? This is what the prophet is speaking about. He says, I will sing a song for the one I love, a song about his vineyard. He goes on, he says this. My beloved had a vineyard on a rich and fertile hill. This is what it looks like in this section of Israel. A lot of terracing. There's rolling hills. It's not steeper hills like up in Jerusalem. It's not flat lowlands like down at the Mediterranean on the coastline. It's these rolling hills. And so they build vineyards or crops and they terrace them and they put up these little little fences and they do this. We do this today. And so this is what it looks like. And you can see there's a fence around it and there's a tree and it's kind of a beautiful area. He says, my beloved had a vineyard on a rich and fertile hill hill. He goes on to say this, he plowed the land, cleared its stones, and planted it with the best vines. This is an illustration of a very strong, very mature, very healthy vine producing some incredible grapes, okay? You can go over there and you can buy wine from these very vineyards, and it's beautiful tasting. It's amazing. He goes on to say this, he says, in the middle he built a watchtower. There are many such examples of this from the ancient world, and this is one of them. Uh, this is a modern vineyard that's still in operation, owned by a family, and uh, this is a vineyard uh, that has a watchtower, an ancient watchtower, built into the middle of it, right there. In the middle, he built a watchtower. It goes on to say this, and carved a wine press in the nearby rocks. This is literally just a depressed part of the rock and stone where they would then, they dug out and carved out and would put a bowl there. And you could see that the vine and the grapes as the things are going on, the grapes, vine, the vineyard, the wine would spill right into it. It was beautiful, okay? And then he says this. Then he waited for a harvest of sweet grapes, but the grapes that grew were bitter. Now, I don't know if it helps you visualize it. It was amazing opening up the Bible and reading Isaiah 5 in that moment, in that vineyard, and experiencing that. If you ever have a chance to go to Israel, do it, okay? Go on a tour. The Bible comes alive like no other way. So how would you react if this was your life? You went out and you bought some land and you cleared it and you built a vineyard. Uh, let's say you did it today for a business and you go out you know, to Yamhill or you go out here in the West and, and you, know, you, you work your ground and it doesn't produce good crop. It only produces sour, bitter grapes, a failed crop. What would you do? Well, let, let, me, let me change the illustration. Um, how many of you know what crypto is? Anybody? Okay. How many actually put money in crypto? Raise your hand. 
We're not going to ask how much. Okay, we don't need your key. Anybody? Raise your hand if you put money. Oh, I know more than you. Come on. You put money in crypto. All right. You're just embarrassed. I know we're all embarrassed right now, right? We're all embarrassed. It's like, how foolish could we have been? It's made up. It's invisible, right? So back in November, um, well, a year ago, year and a half ago, I opened up uh, a stock account for my son, middle son. No, he got one to get really into. He's always bugging me about buying stocks and things like that. I don't know anything. So we opened up a TD Ameritrade account. And the next day, the guy called me and said, what are your goals? I said, to get my son off my back. That's my goal. Um, it's his money. It's in my name. He's 17. I'm going to have to pay the taxes on it. I don't care whatever. He wants to dabble in stocks. And he's working a good job at Papa Murphy's. And he wants to figure the stock market out. And so he invested invested a lot. And, and, uh, and so he did that. And then, then along the way, he's like, dad, I want to get crypto. And, and he wanted to get NFTs. We didn't, we did not let him get an NFT. Okay. All right. Cause it's non anything. Okay. Um, and so, so in November, in November, uh, I was in uh, Phoenix and I was talking with some friends, uh, Kent and Laura Lee Campbell, some old friends at Sunrise, and we're talking, their son's there, and we're talking. He goes, yeah, just open up a Coinbase account. So we sit there at the restaurant, we're having breakfast, and I download Coinbase, and I open up, and I'm like, okay, I'll put 300 bucks in. All right, I put, a, put 100 bucks in Bitcoin, 100 bucks in Ethereum, 100 book in, bucks in uh, basic attention token. Okay, those were the three that I thought, that'd be good. So, and then that was the day everything started to go down. Isn't that how life works, right? So now I'm like, I got like 68 bucks, okay? My 300 went to 68, which is better than some people that I know. Maybe they put like a lot in there. I've been reading stories of how guys have put billions, literally millions of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars, $10,000, and they've lost so much. Imagine what you would feel like. Some of you don't have to imagine. When you looked at your 401k, you looked at your investment, you looked at your stocks, you looked at your crypto, you looked at whatever, and you realize... This isn't what was supposed to happen. It was supposed to double. It was supposed to triple. I was supposed to have this big payoff. That's what God's feeling. God is saying, I did so much for the nation of Israel, and this is all I get? So it's a metaphor. It's a song. It's a poem. It's, it's, a, it's a message that, even though it was written 2,700 years ago, it's pretty old, I think it's relevant to you and to me today. Yeah, it's not written to us, but I think it is. I think it's written to our heart. The message is this. In the poem, we see the great kindness. We see the compassion of God. But the utter failure of men and women to live up to their part of the bargain. And I know that relates to us, if we were honest. If we're not, we're called Pharisees, and we only see the best part of us. And if you think, man, you don't understand, James. When God invested in me, he got a really good deal. I just have to tell you, you're worse than crypto, okay? The investment God made in us is not paying off. None of us can have a good return on the investment. It's actually impossible for us to have a good return on the investment that God gave for us. And Isaiah puts it bluntly, puts it plainly, puts it clearly, and this is what he says. God has moved on our behalf. Let's modernize it for us. He's done everything necessary for us, and we have pushed him away. We have pushed God aside because we have better plans. We have better ideas. And yet God has done everything he could to make us fruitful. But somewhere along the way, when God reached out to you and to me, there were seasons in our lives when we said no. Again, I'm, I'm talking to church people because you're in church or online church people. I don't know where you are, but I'm talking to church people. But I mean, honestly, and it, it comes from me as a pastor. When I look in the mirror, I'm not a good investment. 
I'm not a good payoff. I struggle. I fail. I mean, I have good days. And, and then another day, I wake up the next day. You know what I mean? And that's just life, right? We're not the best investment. God could have done better, right? And Isaiah says, what more could God have done? I mean, this is, what, this is what the Bible says. The Bible says this. I want to read this. He is the one that made us. He gave us life. He gave us breath. He's the one who made us to seek him out and find him because he is not far from any one of us. But we have pushed him aside. We have pushed him down. We have said, no thanks. I want to go this other way because it looks bright and shiny. And the Bible calls that sin. The Bible calls that rebellion and brokenness. From the beginning to the end of the Bible, one of the themes is this. We are ultimately in trouble, not because bad things happen to us. Uh, hear, hear my heart. We are not in trouble as a human race, as people, even as churchgoers, even as followers of Jesus. I'll give you credit on that. We are not ultimately in trouble in the depths of our soul and the inability to do what God wants us to do. We are not ultimately in trouble because bad things happen to us. We're ultimately in trouble because we don't know the truth about ourselves. And we make ourselves up and pretend to be something we're not. And life just keeps showing up, right? And we continue to fail. In our arrogant ignorance, we assume that if we just had a little bit of help, we would be better. That's all we need. I don't want a total transformation. I just want a little, little leg up. I just want a little bit of assistance. And yet our creator, the one who made us, who actually gave us life, is waiting for us to turn to him, and we'd rather turn to something else. One of the greatest sentences I believe has ever been written by a human being was from Augustine, and it's, it's uh, this. I think it's on the screen. He says this, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. We pursue everything for rest, and it doesn't give us rest. It just makes us more restless. God has made us for himself. We were created to be with him and our hearts are not satisfied till they find their satisfaction in him. So this poem speaks to the beauty of this. We've been created by God and, and the metaphors in it and you can see through it, it's really pretty. It's, it's, he builds walls and a watchtower and a wine press. Why? He builds walls because he wants to protect his investment, right? He doesn't want people to come in and just trample over or walk through it. He puts up walls to protect his vineyard. He puts up a watchtower to protect his vineyard, right? Also, when the, the man who is running the vineyard, he kind of comes through it, he wants to work it and he works it and then in the sun it gets hot and he lies down in the cool and he rests. He takes a nap and he gets up and he works it more. He could be out there for days at a time, right? And he puts a wine press up. Why? Because that's the whole point of, of grapes, right? I want to get the wine out of it, right? I'm growing the grapes not just because they're pretty. I want to drink it, okay? I want it to do its process of fermenting and I want to have the best wine possible. That's why he does all of it. It's a beautiful picture of why God does what he does for us. He builds walls, he puts up truths, commands, and he says, these are good for you. Fences, you know, these are healthy for you. You know, he, he, he puts up a watchtower 
would be people in your life who speak to you, who challenge you. He puts up a wine press, a life. I would believe ministry. He can get the most out of us to minister to other people. Just like Adam and Eve, he wanted to walk and talk with them, right? He, he didn't just create a perfect place. He dwelt in the midst of them. He walked and talked with them. And so Isaiah goes on, he says this, Now, you people of Jerusalem and Judah, you judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard that I have not already done? That's a great question. What more could he have done? He did everything. God did his part in abundance. What more could he have done? That's a good question to ask even of our lives. What more could God have done? What more? He did everything, right? When I expected sweet grapes, why did my vineyard give me bitter grapes? Second thing I want to see in this text is the fact that we live a life and we, we have a behavior and contact, conduct that's completely unreasonable. When you think about it, when you put it in the perspective of God, we live for ourselves and even we, we fail that, right? We can't even match up to our own mark, let alone the mark of God, right? The standard of God. And so God makes an appeal to reason and understanding and common sense. He says, look, I did all of the hard work. I did all of the hard work. All I'm expecting you to do is just receive the nutrients that I give you and just live that out and you will bear the right kind of fruit. But we don't even do that. We can't even do that. I mean, this is like the irrationality of humanity, right? When you look and you go, do you watch the news? Do you know what's going on? It's just crazy what's going on in the world today. I mean, imagine if we, as God's people, I'll give you credit here. Let's, let's imagine that we come up with a, a pact, an agreement, that for one year we're going to do this. Um, I have my Fitbit on, and I, I, I guess I'm actually getting steps by moving my hand around and walking. Uh, Sunday's my cheat day, I guess. It's my Sabbath, but I, I get them. I'm on day 321 of a 10K uh, step. I want to get 10,000 steps a day, and, and most days are great. Some days I'm like, oh, it's 10 o'clock. I got to go for a walk, all right? But I want to hit 365 days, and I want to just, like, not do it. I want to just, like, sleep the whole day or take my watch off. I don't really care. I don't want it to be, you know, my master. But I, I just want to hit 365 days, right? I want to just see if I can do it, okay? And so it's weird. I don't know. I just want to do that, okay? Imagine if we did that. If we said, hey, okay, forget steps. We're just going to live out God's commands. Imagine if we just took the Ten Commandments. <laughs> you're like, you're running through, like, what are those again? The Ten Commandments. Okay. Forget the Ten Commandments. Let's do the Two Commandments, okay? Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let's just commit to doing that every day for 365 days. And the second commandment, love your neighbors yourself. Imagine if we just did that. We would be changed. This church would be radically changed. This whole community would go, what's up with those people? They are the most loving, compassionate, generous, self-sacrificing people, okay? For just, just one year, let's just do it. One month, let's try it, right? Or let's go to something else like the, the fruit of the Spirit. Because as followers of Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit in us. And if we walk in the Spirit, walk close to Him, we naturally bear the fruit of the Spirit. So let's just imagine for 365 days, we are people that are people of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. We did that. Can you imagine what would, what would change in our world today? If every believer, everybody that calls themselves a Christian, a follower of Jesus, just did that, our world would be radically, radically woken up. Or look at Paul's writings in 1 Corinthians 13. This is great. Uh, imagine if we were patient. 
for a year. That'd mean we didn't drive anywhere, right? Okay, we didn't hang out with other people. I don't know what it meant, but we were patient for a year. We were kind. We didn't envy. We didn't boast. We weren't proud. We weren't rude. We weren't self-seeking. We weren't easily angered. We kept no record of wrongs. We didn't delight in evil, but we rejoiced in the truth. We always protected and always trusted and always hoped and always persevered and never failed. Can you imagine what living a life of that for 365 days would do for us and the world? But we can't do it. We can't do it. There is no way we can create our own utopia. We can't do it. Even as a church, we can't do it. What's wrong with us? What's wrong with our way of thinking and our way of living that says that I know that's what God says, that's his, his truth, his standard, but I choose this one. Every day we do that, right? We do that. Why? Why? Why do we have so many idols in our lives? Okay, confession. So, um, so for me, I've, I've shared about this. It's the issue of eating and, and you know, gluttony and everything like that and, and just eating things I shouldn't be eating. And it's all about my eyes, my head hunger, not my stomach hunger. And so I'm working. I finish this sermon. I'm working on playing guitar and working through the songs. And I go for my walk. I get my 10,000 steps. I come back in. I get some orange juice. It's great. And I go there and I see that my wife has bought It's It's. And they're in the freezer. It's an ice cream sandwich. And they're big ice cream. Anybody have an It's It's? Okay, there was a box of mint and a box of vanilla. I'm like, hmm, I now have options in how I sin. I like this. I don't have just like one. I can choose which way to sin. So I grab an It's It. I'm sitting there and I sit it there. It's in the package and I'm playing guitar and working on stuff. And it's sitting there and I'm like, well, it's probably about ready. And I eat it and I have some milk afterwards. And I'm like, why did I do that? I didn't want to do that, but I saw it. I saw it and it looked good for food. Food is a stretch <laughs> for consumption. How about that? And I did it. And I'm like, why? Why am I so stupid? Why does my eye want something I know in my mind I shouldn't eat at that season? Maybe there's a time, but not then. Why do I do that? Why do I continue to fail? Can, can anybody relate to that? Even in your best day, you make a good day. You got 24 hours, yay, you hit your goal. Then you wake up. Or you're like, life's great. Yeah, because you were alone and your family's gone, okay? And now they show up, you're like, ah, okay, why, why? Not to blame them, it's just that, you know, it's a reality for us. Why do we look at something else and go, that'll satisfy me? when it is just a lie, and we know it's a lie, if we were stopped to think about it, because afterwards, we call it a lie. I mean, it could be anything. It could be sex, and it could be alcohol. It could be, I mean, you name it. It could be possessions. I mean, there's just a plethora of things it could be for us, whatever it is for you. We all struggle with these things. And Isaiah points out that we are given everything we need, and what more could he have done for us? <laughs> What is wrong with us? What is wrong with us? He goes on to say this. Now, let me tell you what I will do for my vineyard. I will tear down its hedges and let it be destroyed. I will break down its walls and let the animals trample it. I will make it a wild place where the vines are not pruned and the ground is not hoed, a place overgrown with briars and thorns. I will command the clouds drop no rain on it. That's the way you want to go? I'll give you that. 
I'll give you more of that if that's the way you want to go. It's a perfect summary of what happens when we choose to live outside the grace of God. What more could God have done? I mean, let's go back to Adam and Eve. Let's blame them for a while. That's easy. He creates a perfect man, perfect woman, puts them in a perfect place, in a perfect relationship with God, and they walk with him. And that's not enough. They wanted something else because they believed that that something else provided something that God was keeping from them. And if they just had that thing, that would be freedom. And you just replace everything I just said with your life, right? With your struggle, with your sin, with your issue. It's the same, right? And all that we get when we bite into that fruit, or it's it for me last night, is slavery and disappointment and ultimately death, separation from God and barrenness. What more could God have done? What more could he have done? He goes on to say this, this is the end of this part. He says, the nation of Israel is the vineyard of the Lord of heaven's armies. The people of Judah are his pleasant garden. Here it is, he expected a crop of justice, but instead he found oppression. He expected to find righteousness, but instead he heard cries of violence. Now you can read the rest of the chapter. I encourage you to do so today or this week because Isaiah then outlines all the ways that the people rebelled against God. And it wasn't just because they ran after other idols. It's because they oppressed people. They were unjust. They had an unjust society. They were paying off judges. I mean, it, it's, there was a lot of social issues going on as well as spiritual issues. It was a thoroughly corrupt culture, much like what we see when we turn on the news today or read the paper or just tap into the internet and see what's going on. What more could God have done? In, in the closing few minutes, I want to say that, did you know Jesus used this as an illustration? It's kind of fascinating. Take a look at this. In uh, Matthew 21, this is what Jesus says. Now listen to another story. A certain landowner planted a vineyard, built a wall around it, dug a pit for pressing out the grape juice, and built a lookout tower. Jesus is using this as an illustration. He says, then he leased the vineyard to tenant farmers and moved to another country. At the time of the grape harvest, he sent his servants to collect his share of the crop. Goes on. But the farmers grabbed his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. And by the way, he's talking about the prophets. That's what they did to all the prophets of God. They beat them, they, they stoned them, they killed them, right? So the landowner sent a larger group of his servants to collect for him, but the results were the same. Finally, the owner sent his son. Are we waking up? We know what's going on here, right? You have anybody, the, anybody a bit of the Bible in you? You know what's going on. Jesus is telling the story of us, and he's telling the story of Israel, and he's telling the story of himself. Finally, the owner sent his son, which is him, thinking, surely they will my, respect my son. Not happening, okay? But when the tenant farmers saw his son coming, they said to one another, here comes the heir to the estate. Come on, let's kill him and get the estate for ourselves which is totally irrational. It doesn't make any sense in a court of law, right? Perry Mason would shut that down in a heartbeat, okay, right? Law and order, it wouldn't even show up on an episode, right? So they grabbed him, dragged him out of the vineyard, and murdered him. What more could he have done? And look what we did in response. Bible says in our rebellion, ah, we can go back 2,000 years and say it was them, but spiritually it was us. We killed God's son. 
our sinfulness and brokenness was the reason he died for us. He didn't have to, he chose to come and die on the cross for all of our sinfulness because we wanted another love. According to Jesus, we are producing an unprofitable crop and worse than that, we kill anybody, destroy anyone that tells us otherwise. And in our rebellion, we go to such lengths that we would even stand against the holy God and the son who loved us so much that he came to die for us. Tenant farmers knew exactly what they were doing. And in a very real way, we know exactly what we're doing when we reject God. The Bible makes one of the most powerful points when it teaches that we've all rejected God and gone our own way. We've all gone astray. We've all chosen another path. And ultimately, we reject God's Son, the ultimate authority, because we don't want another person telling us what to do. Because we believe God is keeping something from us. And if we could just go taste that thing, that would provide life. That would provide goodness. That would provide the ultimate expression of humanity. And yet, if you're honest, you know it hasn't. And yet, we still reach for that forbidden fruit, thinking that this one will cover it, and it doesn't. God is the rightful owner of our lives. And a rejection of him produces a life of bitterness. And that's just the crazy part about God. He's going to come after us anyway. Because even though he created us to love us and know him, and even though we rejected him and pushed him aside, and I'm not just talking about the whole biblical story, I'm talking about you, I'm talking about me, right? Today, in this lifetime, in our experience, we've pushed him aside. His heart is broken and he sends us a savior, Jesus. And he sends us messengers again and again to tell us the message. And even if we've pushed them aside at times in the past, we've rejected them. What more could he have done? He's done everything if we would just receive his relationship, his forgiveness through his son, Jesus Christ. The modern message of Isaiah 5 is what more could God have done for you? He did everything. The question is, what will you do now knowing it? There's really only one hope for us, and that is to receive the forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ alone, and then we can become a profitable vineyard. And only then can the grapes grow to something that has value for the owner of the vineyard, not us. We're just producing the stuff, right? We're just the, the work that he's tilling, the dirt, the soil, the vine, the grape. That's what we are. The owner of the vineyard is God. What more could he do? Well, what could we do now other than say, yes, God, I acknowledge my brokenness. I acknowledge. I say, yes, I am that unfruitful vineyard. I have pushed you aside, yet I'm going to stop because I need, I need a life change. If you let him rule and reign, Things are different. But if not, if you go to the end of your dying days, pushing him aside, thinking, if I could just have that one more ice cream bar <laughs> or sexual escapade or financial profitable thing, or if I just keep investing in crypto, you know what I mean? It's like, or you could stop and turn the other way. The Bible calls that repent. And he will receive you as his son or daughter. 
Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your love. I thank you for your kindness and your tenderness. And you do not treat us as we deserve, but you continue to call out to us so much to the point that you sent your son to save us. God, rescue us in this moment. Maybe we're here and we're in the room, we're online, and we're, we are Christians, we're followers of you, and yet we still pursue something else. God, lovingly remind us through your Holy Spirit that it never satisfies. And if we're not in your family, if we've never called out to you for your love and for your forgiveness for relationship with you, may we do that now. May we say yes to Jesus, God's son, who's the rightful owner of the vineyard, the rightful owner of our lives. And we come before him and agree with him that we've sinned and agree with him that we failed and agree that he loves us so much he'll cover it if we just say yes and receive him as Lord and Savior. God, we just love you. I love the message of Isaiah 5 because it's true in my heart and it's true in all of ours if we just have a moment of acceptance. And you loved us so much that you sent Christ to die for us. May we receive that in your name we pray. Amen.